0: I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the little thing Annette has in her office. It's been there for a long time, where Annette turns the faces to reflect her mood of, of the day. Um, I, I don't know if, if we had one of those for college this morning. What do you reckon it would be? Certainly after you know the, the time of prayer downstairs and you know, one class and then listening to us sing now, I think, I'm not sure whether subdued or dozy or reluctant to be back after the break would be the appropriate face. The great news is that our God meets us where we are. Let's ask him to help us as we come to his word. Let's pray. Loving Father, we do thank you for the break. and um, Whatever we bring back with us, however we're feeling physically, mentally, spiritually this morning... We ask that you would speak to us through your word. We pray you'd surprise us and move us and refresh us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Gospel ministry isn't really all that complicated. There are really only two parts to it. First, we need to be persuaded that the gospel is true so that we take hold of it ourselves and then we need to persuade other people of the same thing. First we're persuaded, then we persuade others. Simple. We face the fact God is God. He's poured his love on us in the Lord Jesus. And then as Paul says in Second Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade other people. Whether we like it or not, we're in the persuasion business. When we get out of bed in the morning, our first task is to persuade ourselves again that living wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus is what we're made for as his sons and daughters. When we're interacting with people who are not yet Christians, our main responsibility is to explain to them what God has done in Christ and is doing now as the Spirit works through the gospel, and that's really the easy bit. For then we have to persuade people to submit to and live out that message. When we're rubbing shoulders with our brothers and sisters here at at college or in our local church, we need to persuade each other to pour ourselves into keeping going and keeping growing, to continually take hold of the gospel that we already know by faith and live in a way which fits with the gospel. We're all about knowing the truth and persuading other people that it's true. Now, of course, persuasion isn't the same thing as manipulation. Manipulation is a way of getting what we want indirectly, playing on someone's emotions, desires, guilt, vulnerabil- vulnerabilities, or ego. Paul has actually ruled that out just a few verses earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've renounced underhanded, disgraceful ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Instead, we persuade by the open statement of the truth. But persuade we must. See, this really is the ultimate goal of an institution like QTC. We labor and long for the day when we'll not only grasp the length and height and breadth of the richness of the truth of the gospel, not just when we'll be mastered by the immensity and tenderness and beauty and awesomeness of Christ as we meet him in the gospel, But so that we're all set up today, tomorrow, next week, next year to persuade women and men and children to live for the glory of God while they have breath. So that knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And that brings us back to the book of the prophet Hosea. Because whatever else he is, Hosea is a persuader. There is a reason why this fairly relentless book just keeps on giving. There is a reason why there are 14 Old Testament books devoted almost entirely to the preaching of the prophets. And 15 if you count the outlier Jonah. It's because people like us have always needed persuasion to do even those things which are most obviously right and good for us. Our God, in his kindness, has provided an extravagant amount of material to persuade us to live gospel-shaped, grace-filled, God-honoring lives, including Hosea 9 and 10. See, the prophet is in full flow as we pick up the thread of his passionate persuasion. And there's not really all that much new information here, but there are a lot of reasons to do what they should do. In verses 1 to 9 that Vicki just read of chapter 9, Hosea basically says, Can't you see there is no joy without worshipping God? It's pretty clear from the start of chapter 9, in fact from the whole book, that the people of the northern kingdom have thrown themselves wholeheartedly into living like every other nation under the sun, and in particular into worshipping gods other than Yahweh. That's why Hosea says, Don't rejoice, O Israel. Don't exult like everyone else, for you have played the whore forsaking your God. Now, Hosea hasn't actually accused them of whoredom for almost two whole chapters, so it's about time he gets back on track. But this time, he supplies a bit more detail, because it turns out that the people of Israel have been looking to Baal to provide them with the basic necessities of life, grain, new wine, olive oil. They have acted like prostitutes, and it has paid off. They've celebrated harvest festivals all over the nation on every threshing floor, raising a glass to the Lord Baal who came up with the goods. Everyone is doing it. And Hosea's response is as accurate as it is blunt. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all your threshing floors. The reality, of course, is in the words of verse 2, that threshing floor and wine vat shall not ultimately feed them. New wine shall fail them. Your joy will only be short lived because false gods can't actually deliver. Baal cannot provide for you. But it's actually worse than that because trusting in anyone or anything other than Yahweh is a recipe for disaster. Back in Leviticus, God had made it crystal clear that the land was his land and refusing to accept that would have dire consequences as it had for the Canaanites before them. This is Leviticus 18. Don't make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants." The same thing will happen to you if you worship other gods. So verse 3, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Now Egypt, here's a metaphor for coming under the curse of the covenant as they spurn its blessings. Their actual destination is Assyria. However, the Assyrians weren't really into relocation, like the Babylonians who would follow them. They were more into dismantling and total devastation, which explains what Hosea says next. After the Assyrians roll in, the kind of exile they experience will be less the rivers of Babylon and more post-apocalyptic dystopia. In particular, the Bacchanalian hedonism of the threshing floor planting movement would be replaced by... Well, actually, nothing. Worship will grind to a halt. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices shall shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Now, mourner's bread here seems to be the equivalent of leftover sandwiches from a funeral. According to Deuteronomy 26:12 to 15 that ruled it out from being offered at the place chosen by God. Back in Deuteronomy 12, when you've finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, when you've given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat, then you shall say this before the Lord, I've removed the sacred portion out of my house, I've given it to the Levite and the others according to all your commandment. I haven't eaten of the tithe while I was mourning or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I've obeyed the voice of Yahweh, my God. I've done everything you've commanded me. Now, according to Hosea, a day is coming when all bread will be like those curled up leftover sandwiches. No bread. No bread. Will be offered to Yahweh in his house. The prohibition of the bread of mourning would extend to all of it. Why? Well, because people will need to eat that bread, every crust they can lay their hands on. And in any case, there won't be a house to offer it in. Can't you see, says Hosea, where this is all going? You know it is a mere 83 days to Christmas who would have thought but Hosea warns his people that they're not going to worry have to worry about Christmas their big festival is about to be cancelled verse 5 what will you do on the day of the appointed festival on the day of the feast of the Lord basically they can do whatever they like because nothing is going to be happening Back in 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the founder of the nation of Israel, had very cleverly switched the harvest by a couple of weeks just to provide some differentiation from those pesky southerners in Judah, south of the border. But if his descendants keep going the way they're going, every celebration will come crashing to a halt. Yes, Hosea knows they might try to avoid the onrushing Assyrian hordes, but it won't work. Even if they try running away from destruction, verse 6, Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them. They'll be buried among the pyramids of Giza, which are in Memphis, the other assorted tombs there. They're going to lose everything, including the family silver, as the nettles and thorns of judgment rapidly overgrow the entire nation. It's only going to end one way, Hosea says. Speaking of the future in the perfect tense, verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. Now, I hope you see what's going on here. Hosea is using every possible means to woo and persuade his generation as he calls them to face reality and pursue joy in the only place it can be found, in worshipping the one true God. The trouble is that even as he preaches, he knows just how unlikely it is that they'll listen. Verses 7 to 9 are a bit tricky. But I take it that Hosea is anticipating the usual response needed out by the northern kingdom and God's spokesman. What do they say? They say the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. And they say it because they've lost the plot. Because of their great iniquity and great hatred. Hosea knows, verse 8, that the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Probably implies he has access to the divine counsel in heaven. He sees things the way they really are. But the people, they just attack and abuse prophets. A fowler's snare is on all his ways. And hatred in the house of his God. You see, idolatry, as practiced so consistently for so long by Israel, is a miserable dead end. Hosea sums it up like this. They've deeply corrupted themselves, verse 9, as in the day of Gibeah. That's probably an allusion to the brutality and depravity of the worst chapters in the Bible, Judges 19 to 21, where, if you're familiar with the chapters, a young concubine is horribly abused, callously murdered, and then chopped up and distributed, sparking a civil war. God says Israel's been like that since the beginning. But now he will remember their iniquity, and he will punish their sin. See how this little unit begins with God's people partying just like everyone else. And it ends in darkness and tragedy. Calvin says, nothing more grievous can happen to us than the doing away of all difference between us and the profane despisers of God, even in the outward manner of living. That's something we need to remind ourselves of and be prepared to persuade God's people of right now. When I was a young Christian, the gap between the church and the world was large and well signposted. The consensus was pretty clear. Christians were supposed to have a different attitude to smoking, alcohol, sex, money, swearing, sharing a house with someone of the opposite sex, dressing modestly. I could go on, but you get the picture. Every Christian knew these were the rules. We were supposed to be countercultural. Now, the dangers of that are obvious and, and uh, pretty significant. Many of us were very legalistic, had an under, underdeveloped doctrine of the goodness of God and common grace. Lots of Christians didn't have any friends who weren't Christians because we didn't want to be contaminated. It's probably fair to say lots of us were quite smug. My generation have had to worship uh, to, to work those issues through. But you've probably noticed the world has moved on. Whilst legalism will always be a risk for Christians, for most of us today, certainly for most of you, the challenge isn't to re-engage with the world because you've hedged yourselves off. It's the fact that lots of Christians, I think, are slipping into thinking... That doing things just like everybody else is the way to be really happy. So we watch what everyone else is watching. We wear what everyone else is wearing. We buy what everyone else is buying. We go where everyone else is going. We do what everyone else is doing. We speak in the same way as everyone else. We want the same thing as everyone else for our children. The pattern of our lives starts to resemble everyone else's almost exactly with a minor exception that we throw in a Bible study at some point during the week and give up, give up some part of Sunday to show up in church. See, the challenge today isn't to come to terms with the fact that there is no joy in legalism. It's actually that there is no joy to be found in living like everyone else. This is what we need to come to terms with. And honestly, this is what you're going to have to spend a large part of your lives persuading God's people to take hold of. Now, it's hardly a new problem. Hear these words from Romans 1 where Paul's talking about the typical first century Gentile. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Like Hosea, Paul wants to persuade us That there is no joy without worshipping God. He also says, Can't you see there's no security without loving God? You see that from verse 10. There is something intoxicating about the start of a new relationship the quickening of the pulse, the dryness in the mouth, butterflies in the stomach. The prospect of this developing into something that goes on and on. Or perhaps that's contracting long COVID. Um, But through Hosea, God describes the start of his relationship with his people in a slightly different way. Look at verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. Wild grapes are a pretty unusual find. Apparently, it can take five or six years for a fig tree to produce its first actual fig. In both cases, it's a picture of God's yearning love for his people, brought to fruition over generations and bursting out in delight in the Exodus. But look at what happens next. They came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves literally to the shame And became detestable like the thing they loved. Numbers 25 narrates the awful events where 24,000 Israelites die as a result of choosing Baal rather than Yahweh. He loved them. They loved what Hosea simply calls the shame. And they became detestable. They became what they loved. There are a few places in the Bible where the disastrous effects of loving the wrong thing can be seen so clearly. I think it's the only place in the Old Testament that people are actually described as detestable. But Hosea wants us to see that this really matters. For for not only is there no joy, ultimately there's no stability, no meaning, no security without loving God. And the frightening reality is that whether we live in Ephraim 750 years before Jesus, or Australia... 2,000 years after, we are subject to all kinds of massively powerful influences and habits which even now shape what we love. Listen to these words from James K.A. Smith's really helpful book, You Are What You Love. Here's what he writes. I'm covertly conscripted into a way of life because I've been formed by cultural practices that are nothing less than secular liturgies. My loves have been automated by rituals I didn't even realize were liturgies. These tangible, visceral, repeated practices carry a story about human flourishing that we learn in unconscious ways. These practices are loaded with their own orientation towards a particular vision of the good life, a rival version of the kingdom And by our immersion in our world, we are, albeit unwittingly, being taught what and how to love. So what exactly are we being taught to love? You tell me as you do your be real and post another story. What exactly are we being taught to love? You tell me as we choose from almost every cuisine on the planet in the food court. What are we being taught to love? You tell me as all we have to do is stop at the lights to be confronted with slicker technology and greater luxury and an enhanced lifestyle, especially for the over 50s. This is the world in which we are called to persuade people that God's love is peerless and is the only love which lasts and delivers and satisfies. And that's exactly what Hosea is doing. You see that from verse 11. According to Psalm 3, it is Yahweh himself who is our glory. David writes, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. That's what he was for Ephraim. But long before Ezekiel saw the glory of God leaving the temple, Isaiah writes, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. And the consequences of the departure of God couldn't be more severe. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Both the command to fill the earth and it, and the promise to Abraham to give him descendants as numerous as grains of sand or the stars in the heavens appear to stall. Their spiritual promiscuity have, has terrible consequences. But Hosea is not finished. Because to spurn this lover is to face his terrible wrath. Verse 12, even if they bring up children, I'll be, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Hosea is surely reflecting the much earlier words of Moses who spelled out the covenantal consequences of pledging allegiance to another in Deuteronomy 28. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of the heaven, you'll be left few in number because you didn't obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And as Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so he will take delight in bringing ruin on you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. To love anyone or anything else is to experience loss and dislocation and dispossession. That's the harsh reality that Hosea longs for them to grasp. He adds another image in verse 13 to drive this home. Ephraim, as I've seen, was like a young palm or possibly the city of Tar planted in a meadow. Either way, the point is Ephraim looked good, but disaster is looming. Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Given that prospect Hosea actually asked that God would hold back from even allowing them to have children. The syntax is deliberately broken. Give them, O Lord What will you give? The Prophet concludes that the best thing to pray for is this give them a miscarrying woman dry breasts. At least that will spare the kids. There's little doubt that Hosea is using shock tactics in a passionate attempt to move and provoke his people to love God, the God of the covenant, who's poured out his loving kindness on them. In verse 15, he goes back once more to their history, this time probably to their request for a king, just like all the other nations which came to fruition in First Samuel 11 when they crowned Saul at Gilgal. Hosea says, even as Israel became a kingdom, the rot set in. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal, therefore I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will treat them like Canaanites. Drive them out of my house. Love them no more. All their princes are rebels. To refuse to love Yahweh. To love another is to choose death. Verse 16, Ephraim is chopped down. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they haven't listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Like Cain in Genesis 4, whose offering fell so far short of the wholehearted response which God's grace always deserves. This is shocking material, but to hear Hosea's plaintive appeal to his people, to love Yahweh rather than Baal or any other God, is to get to the heart of this book. Hosea knows what's at stake, so he pours himself out in the increasingly vain hope that they will listen. How much more then should we seek to persuade those whom we know and care for to embrace And return the love of God for them in Christ. Hear the words of Paul at the start of Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, can't they see that there is no security apart from the Christ who has come from our very tribe shares Hosea's passion for the people that he's trying to persuade. See, the challenge before us in the years to come is not simply to explain the content of the gospel. It's knowing the fear of the Lord to persuade men and women. Let's ask God to soften our hearts that we might feel for and pour ourselves out for those who need to hear the truth and be persuaded of it. Which brings us to chapter 10, where Hosea essentially says, can't you see there is no satisfaction without seeking God? 10 verse 1 is another image of God's people when he first called them. Israel's a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. But look what happens next. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built, which hardly fits with worshipping in the place that God alone chooses. Any lingering doubts removed by what follows. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. They're Pillars, probably phallic symbols associated with the worship of Baal and his consort Asherah. The more prosperous they got, the more they sought satisfaction in the wrong places. And Hosea's diagnosis? Their heart is slippery, slick, deceptive. That's what the false word means. And now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. See, this is why persuasion is so important. Because the human heart is so slippery, deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says. Now, remember, of course, the heart isn't simply the seat of the emotions. It's the whole box and dice. To speak of the heart in Hebrew needs a a string of words in English. It's our mind, our personality, our will, our soul, our very self. See, to talk about who we are at the deepest level, the Old Testament always reaches for the language of heart. And it's actually because our hearts need persuaded and re-persuaded over and over and over again. In one way, we shouldn't need all this persuading and cajoling. It's kind of obvious. The God of the universe made us and loves us. We are made to worship him. We know only he can satisfy. And yet, even as the people of God, we need to be convinced. We get caught up in what can't deliver. In what can't create, what can't forgive, and above all, what can't satisfy. You see, Hosea anticipates the unraveling of Israelite society. For now they'll say, verse 3, we've no king for we don't fear the Lord and a king. What can he do for us? Whether this is a brief window in the middle of the procession of terrible Israelite kings or at the end of the line when Hosea is defeated by the Assyrians doesn't really matter. What's clear is that these people think they need neither God nor a king. Instead they talk, probably to each other, though possibly to the advancing Assyrians. With empty oaths they make. All kinds of covenants. They'll say whatever it takes to head off the inevitable, but it isn't going to work. The fabric of society starts to unravel as the justice system resembles poisonous weeds growing in a ploughed field. Then in verse 5, Hosea anticipates God's future decisive action against the daddy of all idols, the calf of Bethel, called the house of sin, Beth-Avan, here as in many places. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, so do its idolatrous priests. They rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it is departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Now, trusting in a golden cow was never going to be a good idea, and at this point, it really wasn't a great call. It wasn't going to deliver them from the Assyrians. But it's not just the calf that comes to grief. Verse 7 Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. Have you ever played a game, Pooh Sticks, as played by Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin in A.A. Milne's famous The House at Pooh Corner? Hours of endless fun guaranteed as you drop a stick on the upstream side of any bridge and race round the other side to fight about which stick made it onto the bridge first. The next time, just take care. You might just see the king of Israel floating past. Because God says that's what he does to his rivals. Verse 8, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. Does that language ring any bells? Jesus uses it in Luke 23. And then memorably John repeats it in Revelation 6 as history comes to a climax in his vision. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and powerful, everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to them, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There is no satisfaction, no security, no future apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. People need to be persuaded of that. And the intensity keeps rising. Verse 9, we're back in Gibeah. You've sinned, O Israel. You've kept doing it. Shall not the war against the the unjust overtake you? Of course, it should. Verse 10 When I please, God says, I will discipline them, and the nations will be gathered against them when they're bound up for their double iniquity. That's forsaking God and running after the Baals. And then, just like that, verse 11 Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. I didn't know you could train cattle but apparently you can. There's now the technology to put satellite-controlled shock collars on cows' necks that will do away with the need for fences. You just need to train the cow. The things you find out. But I could have just read Hosea. Because <laughs> Ephraim was like a trained calf that loved to thresh, didn't even need a, a, a constraining yoke. It was all very easy. Until it wasn't. They abandoned Yahweh and he's going to act. And Isaiah says, all God's people will have to submit to him one day or another. One way or another. I will put Ephraim to the north to the yoke. Judah to the south will have to plow. As will Jacob the whole nation. As the prophet Jeremiah would say about 150 years later, they needed to embrace judgment first before they could experience salvation. Which is what verse 12 is about. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness on you. It's only in seeking God in repentance and faith. Only being willing to do the hard yards of breaking up the well-trodden paths of independence that integrity and satisfaction will be found. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul picks up these very verses as he tries to persuade the Galatians to make gospel-shaped choices as they serve each other. Don't be deceived, he says, Galatians 6, 7. God's not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. For let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul just picks up the principle. If you want to know satisfaction, if you want to know security, seek God. There's so much at stake here. Hosea states the obvious in verse 13. You've ploughed iniquity, you've reaped injustice, you've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way. And in the multitude of your warriors, war shall arise, your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. We don't know if that's Shalmanes or the Assyrian or Salamanu, a particularly obnoxious Moabite king, but either way, it's pretty clear it wasn't very pleasant. The choice they face is one of seeking satisfaction in God or facing judgment for their rebellion against him. Verse 15. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Now, at one level. We can't actually read these words of Hosea and apply them directly to ourselves. That's part of the beauty of the prophets. He writes to persuade us to act and think in profoundly gospel-shaped ways. In the first place, we need to hear his words and take them to heart. Can't you see there is no joy without worshiping God? There's no security without loving God. No satisfaction without seeking God. And as the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered people of God, that may be what we need to hear and act on as we round this final bend of the QTC year. But we don't just need to hear this message. We actually need to copy the prophet's method. Because like him, we are called to a ministry of wooing and warning and cajoling and patiently loving, persuading people to take hold of and keep hold of the gospel. That's a tough calling, as Hosea knows all too well. I suspect that part of the reason we have so much prophetic preaching in the Bible is to prepare us as God's people for the reality that much of the time when we speak, people will be slow to listen and slower to change. That was vividly underlined for me during the break, and with this I'm done. Um, I started to read a biography of Wayne Bennett, uh, the former Queensland state of origin and Brisbane Broncos coach now with the Dolphins up the road. Now, I confess I'm not really all that interested in NRL, but I thought I would read it because I knew that Bennett is famed for being one of the greatest man managers sport has ever seen. But I read this in the introduction, which really did surprise me. Uh, The writer explains that when Wayne Bennett speaks these days, commanding a huge fee, no doubt, he almost always tells a Cherokee parable in which an old man tells his grandson, a fight is going on inside me, and it's a terrible fight. It's a fight between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, resentment, lies, inferiority, and ego. The other is a good wolf. He is joy, peace, love, hope, humility, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside all of us. The grandson says, but which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replies, the one you feed. Bennett's biographer, Andrew Webster, writes this. Wayne Bennett's strength is the simplicity of his message, but his life is complicated, his personality impossible to read. He says, I've worked all my life to feed the good wolf. It's the choice we've got. But Webster adds, when you're a coach hunting the next victory, doing whatever is needed to win and to survive, the question is, which wolf howls the loudest? We speak into a world where the wolves are howling. Where we are all deciding which wolf to feed. A world like this doesn't just need facts. It needs to be shown and lovingly and gently and persistently convinced. So knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Trusting our God to do what only he can enabling people to seek security and significance and satisfaction in Christ alone in the power of the Spirit. Because as Hosea himself discovers, even the most moving, compelling explanation in the world, even the most brilliant persuasion, won't make any difference unless the Spirit works to open blind eyes and straighten slippery hearts. We must persuade, even as we know that only God can move people to worship him and love him and seek him. But let's remember that this is exactly what our God delights to do. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we ask that you would give us your love for our generation, for our family members, for the people who live in our street, for our friends who don't yet know Christ, for our brothers and sisters here at college, around us in church, Scattered across this city and this nation and this world. And make us people. Who know the fear of the Lord. And so persuade others. Constantly reminding each other. That security and satisfaction and joy and significance. Can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone in whose name we pray. Amen. This recording of QTC Chapel is made possible with the support of our generous financial partners. If you have found this podcast helpful and encouraging, would you please consider partnering with us? For details on how to do this, visit www.qtc.edu.au and click on Support QTC.